This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, main content for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel. My name is Theta, and today we are looking at Episode 9 of Land of the Lustrous. When discussing last episode, I speculated that they may skip straight into spring rather than picking up where we left off. There's a few reasons this decision would have made sense to me. For one, it would preserve the association between winter and the bleak tone that haunts the end of episode 8. Linking death or death-like states to the winter months is a tendency rather ingrained in us, and it helps emphasize the scope of the loss our characters feel at a dark site being taken away. We feel it ourselves more acutely thanks to this association. Having additional and less mournful scenes set in winter during this episode could potentially dilute that effect. I also thought that contrasting Fos's sense of loss or guilt against springtime and the return to life and activity would result in an interesting character crisis. She would feel a dissonance between the rebirth of spring and the state of grief that hung over her. And so reconciling herself to what happened amid those who did not share the experience would be insightful. However, this episode picks up with us still in winter, the other gems still in hibernation. Based on what I just said, do I consider this a mistake? Not at all. In fact, it is critical to the way they wanted to develop Fos's characterization, which we'll get to later on. It creates the contrast between Fos and the other gems which I anticipated, but does so after Fos attempts to reconcile the situation by herself. It's not what I speculated, but I am not disappointed to be wrong. To expand on that, I have the speculation section of these videos all the way at the end, partially so that people who do not care for speculation can skip the section entirely. If that's you, then the video basically ends for you there. For me personally though, speculating about the future of a story greatly increases my understanding of it. I do not include these sections so that I can congratulate myself whenever I guess right. Um, I don't think my track record is even that great, and so a lot of these sections could be considered wasted time and effort. That is, if the only value was in keeping score of wrong versus right speculations. The actual value is in that process of formulating and then articulating a suggestion about the direction of events. The reason this is beneficial is because it requires synthesizing all the things you understand about a story to that point. For example, if I want to make a guess about how a character will react to an upcoming situation, I can't hope for any kind of accuracy unless I reflect on what I know about that character. Have they faced a similar situation in the story so far? How do they react then? Has their characterization changed enough to expect a different reaction? How about their goals? Are they in their normal state of mind right now? Are there new consequences that didn't exist before? New world-building details that may change the outcome? Is there perhaps a new conflict whose resolution would take priority over what they would normally do? Or, if this is an experience they've never encountered, how have they reacted to surprises? 
How quickly do they deal with new information? And quite apart from what we understand about the character, what is the larger story doing at this point in time? Are there strong thematic patterns that we expect will factor into how the situation is portrayed? Or even how much emphasis it may receive? Are unexpected twists or last-minute reveals of new information a part of how the story has been told? What about structural consideration? Are we in the beginning, middle, or end of an act or of an arc? How about the overall tone of the story? Is it more cynical or more optimistic? How irreversible have consequences been in the story to this point? And so on. Formulating a reasonable speculation requires an answer to a lot of these questions, and the process of asking and answering said questions deepens one's grasp on the story's path thus far. New patterns will emerge that were previously missed. Connections, separated by distance in the story, will click into place. Even a larger perspective on what the entire work is doing becomes possible. In that context, being wrong about what you speculate is potentially even more helpful than being right. If you guess correctly, then you have no immediate cause to reassess all of those various moving parts that went into your speculation. But if you guess incorrectly, then it means there is still much more for you to learn and understand. You have, you have cause to re-examine all of those aspects uh, with the new information, and so some further connection or new pattern may occur to you. And sometimes, there wasn't anything wrong about the conclusions that led to the speculation. Rather, the divergence illuminates something heretofore unknown. Two episodes ago, I pointed out how we had a couple instances of things which seemed likely to occur, and when they didn't, the story called attention to the fact that they never happened. In both cases, it gave us cause to reassess how we looked at a character. It would seem now that both were having an internal struggle of sorting between multiple things that they valued. For me, at least, incorrectly guessing how these events played out gave me a sense of uncertainty that the characters in question were likely also experiencing. I am more empathetic to their experience because I myself turned out to have confusion. But those two examples are different situations than my incorrect assumption about how Episode 9 decided to tell its part of the story. Fosa's reaction to the ill-fated Cord Shore visit is not the surprise here. Instead, the storyteller's choice of how to portray this reaction was the thing I found unexpected. I thus should re-examine not my assumptions about the character, but my assumptions about which things the story chooses to emphasize. That will form the starting point for our characterization section today, after a very brief combined section of goals and conflicts. But first, the title. I am combining goals and conflicts together today because there is nothing to track on the conflict side of things, though a couple things I nevertheless want to mention. Goals is likewise rather brief, but has an important event. Today we can take one of Fosa's goals off the board for good, as its influence on her character has completed its journey. The original goal of join the fight is no longer a thing she is chasing after. She has caught it. She has been successful in her pursuit. And in what is one of the more obvious purposes of this episode, she has found it different from what she thought it would be. As she'll say, I had always dreamed of being out here fighting, but now it's just a dangerous line of work. 
I do not want to talk too much about it here, since we are going to go right into talking about Fos's state of mind in the next section, but I will mention a few key things about why I consider the goal to be complete. Obviously, she joined the fight. Like I said last time, Fos, of all people, actually killed a Lunarian. In another context, this might have been a moment of victory, but contrasted against the loss of Antarctosite and the way she still comes up short, the victory becomes hollow indeed. The first moment Fos is really, truly in the fight is also the moment of her greatest failure. There are a lot of things that go into the disconnect that Fos exhibits throughout this episode, but it's safe to say that achieving her original goal has not given her a sense of fulfillment. There is no joy or excitement in her fights against the Lunarians. I dare say there is not even a sense of satisfaction. If anything, this is now merely a means to another end, which I'll talk about in a moment, but there is no feeling of eagerness towards the performance of this role. It has become rote, a duty, a requirement. It is no longer anything like a dream. She will get a chance to essentially relive the fight with Amethyst that went so poorly before. It is even staged in the same way, with Fos behind the two as they prepare to fight on what even seems like the same hill. The result is the complete opposite of the first fight, and is a very direct confirmation that Fos has accomplished this goal. But while the twins will exult in her victory, Fos's reaction will be considerably more subdued. What does interest Fos about fighting Lunarians is the new goal for Fos, recover Antarcticite. I will say that what I understand about this world suggests completing this goal will be rather unlikely, but way back at the beginning, Fos joining the fight also seemed rather unlikely. The important part of tracking it is not whether the audience finds it worth pursuing, but whether the character does. Even if this turns out to be impossible in truth, if Fos believes it's possible, she'll act accordingly. Fos pursuing it can therefore affect the story, thus it is worthwhile for us to watch how it develops from here. The way she fought the Lunarians this time is actually already influenced by this desire. She will cut down the large one and peer inside, hoping that one of them will be the new kind which repurposes the lost gems. We can guess that she is hoping to find more shards of Antarcticite to go with the foot she recovered, and in so doing, she potentially puts herself and others at risk. In the later fight, she'll be preoccupied with her disappointment and thus reacts late to the unexpected threat from her surviving Lunarian archer. The pursuit of this goal ultimately amounts to nothing in this scene, but it's implied there could have been fallout. It's reasonable then to expect consequences in the future or a situation where Fos has to choose between goals. For conflicts, I have nothing to add, but we'll just comment on a few things. The Lunarians have not employed any new trickery, to Fos's disappointment, but that most likely means that a novel type of Lunarian will appear for a distant story beat. After all, it stops being a surprise if they change it up every time. There is also a potential conflict brewing with Bort, but nothing solid. She is paying attention to Fos differently than before, and will almost certainly come into the story in a more direct way in the near future. It's hard to conclude this is a conflict for certain, so I will simply address this in speculation. In characterization, we're just going to go right into talking about Fos. Like I said in our intro, there was a disconnect between how this episode unfolded and how I expected it to unfold. I found myself reflecting on what this difference changes in the experience. What is it that is most distinct compared to what I imagined? What I've concluded is that the first half of this episode 
emphasizes how Fosa's character journey has largely happened in isolation. She doesn't sort through her feelings or come to new conclusions about what she should do as part of the community. Though she has at times had conversations where she shares her thoughts with someone else, she is nothing like a consistent or trusted confidant. Cinnabar keeps everyone at arm's length, and everyone else mostly wants to keep Fos at arm's length. Daya is sweet to Fos, but has her own internal crisis that preoccupies her. The conversations between Fos and Ventricosis were some of Fos's more vulnerable moments, but that ended in betrayal and separation. Antarcticite didn't have the social experience to be helpful in this way, even if Fos had pursued it. And even Congo seems somewhat as a loss in the first part of this episode when confronted with how Fos has shifted in behavior. These scenes before waking the rest of the gems create an emphasis on the individual, solitary path that Fos is attempting to walk. I won't mention our journey without distance theme in that section today, but it's something of the same idea. There are these encounters with the other characters and the accompanying crises, yet they are largely disconnected from one another. Fos and her involvement are the primary linking thread, but pretty much the only linking thread. Now, even though we remain in winter for the first part of our episode, it does not pick up immediately after the loss of Antarcticite. Instead, there is a time skip in which a change in Fos has occurred, and the severity of this change is emphasized in a fantastic show-don't-tell manner. After the credits, when our episode proper begins, we open with the same music that kicks off the whole series, the music of the beginning. It plays over a lingering shot of flowers blooming beside the snow. Spring is in its infancy, which means it is time for rebirth, new beginnings and new life and new creatures. And into this scene walks Fos. In short order, we get a good look at her, and we realize that she, too, is something new. I've pointed out several times now that we have had the pattern of a character or two arriving in the story, being our focus for one or two episodes, and then largely exiting the stage. That has been true of every single episode until this one. You see, in this episode, Fos is the new character. As I mentioned at the end of the last video, I was very interested in how Fos was going to internalize the loss of Antarcticite. Denial? Crippling grief? Or guilt? How about anger? Well, within less than a minute, and with almost no words spoken, we see that it's none of these. The reality is a Fos with almost no emotion at all. She has changed her hair to resemble the lost Antarcticite, but she also seems to have adopted her no-nonsense approach. Even her eyes recall Antarcticite's default expression. Just like the golden arms, though, this personality is grafted on to the original Fos and is just as foreign. Fos will make note of the new Lunarian, fetch Congo, and dispatch it, all with no hint of worry or excitement or even urgency. She is detached. I had a mild concern that Fos might change with the loss of her memories, but it seems it is the loss of her fellow Jim that had the power to disrupt her. This shift can't be attributed to the influence of Congo, despite the two of them being alone in the months we don't see. Yes, he also keeps tight rein over his emotions, but he seems troubled over this shift in her. When he will urge her to rest after they deal with the Lunarians, she will brush him off and proceed to the duty of the ice flows. She cannot bring herself to face Antarcticite if she stops now. He seems at a loss for words as he watches her leave. Safe to say that the change in Fos is not his doing. Once Fos is alone, though, we will start to get some insight. 
She will think of how she was mistaken to try throwing her sword before. Should she get another chance, it seems she intends to dedicate her actions toward rescue rather than attack. Fos is experiencing regret. She is ostensibly trying to live up to Antarcticite's last words, attend to the winter tasks, keep Congo company, but Fos's approach seems to be less about duty and more about penance. Despite what Congo said in the last moments of episode 8, Fos has internalized this failure as her own, thinking that if she could have just done something differently, Realistically, I can't see how she could think she could have reached Antarcticite with her arms when the weapon could not. It seems more about punishing herself than a logical post-hack analysis, but Fos's problem is that she is not equipped to deal with the trauma she experienced. It's clear from Congo's words that Fos is pushing herself too far, and that's also apparent in the scene where she talks to Antarcticite. Well, to her foot anyway, the fragment she recovered due to the Lunarian she first killed. Fos has set the foot in a bowl and brought it a flower, and her one-sided conversation about her day is analogous to someone visiting a grave to speak to the one departed. Something about the process is cathartic for those who grieve, yet I don't believe Fos even understands what she is experiencing. It is a hint, though, that she isn't as dead inside as her behavior was suggesting. We'll learn she is fighting to stay awake all the time, as it turns out the gems are capable of having nightmares. The image of Antarcticite breaking apart in front of her is haunting Fos. But despite passing out in this manner, Fos will still resist going to sleep when Congo tries to get her to go to her quarters. Instead, Fos will find new work to keep herself occupied, the repairing of Congo's robes. This too gives us an insight that Fos is not completely dead inside, as she will be able to argue in favor of the task by imitating Red Barrel's distress at finding the robes in such a state. That requires an empathetic understanding of her fellow Jim, as well as understanding that Congo would not want to put her out in that way. However, repairing the robes cannot be passed off as Fos trying to push herself because of an obligation to the winter duties, as those have nothing to do with repairing clothing. Instead, it is more busy work, something else to keep her occupied and awake so that she doesn't have the nightmares. Fos doesn't know how to face them because she doesn't know how to face the source of them the mass of sadness and confusion and regret inside of her. She will start crying at one point, but does not even recognize what that is. The only real moment of accurate introspection she has in this first part is admitting that she finds the speed of her changes frightening. So that is First Half Fos, the characterization shift that we get to experience while she is still mostly alone. Fos has fabricated a new normal for herself. She co-opted Antarcticite's purpose, and perhaps even is emulating her personality as part of it. But she is unable to heal because of inexperience and her isolation, instead settling on the withdrawn and numb Fos we are greeted with at episode's beginning. In the second half, though, the rest of the gems will be awake. They have time-skipped in one sense as well. Hibernation means that their own personalities have been in stasis, so other than something I'll address at the end of the section, each of them is the same person they were before Fos stayed awake for the winter. The purpose of this episode's setup thus becomes clear. We get an opportunity to see how Fos tries to come to terms in isolation, and then get to see that new Fos juxtaposed against the other Jim's personalities and their expectations of her. 
it's a bit as if Fos time travels to a past version of Jim's society, and the contrast between who she was then and who she is now is all the more stark. It also puts this new normal for her under strain. Had she withdrawn and forced herself into constant preoccupation alongside all the other gems, she may very well have remained that way for some time. Instead, Fos was somewhat unaware of how far she'd changed, and being back around people who remember her from before will make her unavoidably aware. There are a few moments that I think highlight this collision of old and new. The first is when Fos is waking up the other gems, and they at first confuse her with Antarcticite. Rutil will recover from the surprise and ask Fos to also check on Cinnabar. Rutil will even remember that Fos had been saying just before they hibernated anything but that, yet that is not why Fos pauses. Instead, she will at first not remember who Cinnabar is. This ends up being another one of those things that the series reminds us was possible and then goes in another direction, but leave that aside for a moment. The part that interests us here is that after it takes her a moment to recall, Fos will ask them to forget what she said, that she thinks she is a bit of a mess. To which Rutil agrees. Having Cinnabar slip from the forefront of her mind and even struggling to recall her isn't something Fos can ignore. She recognizes immediately that it means something is wrong with her. The other moment this episode involving Cinnabar is even more illuminating. It's almost the same setup as episode 7, where Fos fled from Amethyst and the rest only to accidentally come upon Cinnabar walking the night patrol. In that instance, Fos sees her first and avoids the encounter, but this time Cinnabar sees her first and comes up behind. The resulting conversation is perhaps the most that Fos will act like her old self during the whole episode. Although I'm not going to give Cinnabar her own section, I want to point out that she is the only one of the gems who isn't caught up by the change in Fos. Rather, she seems annoyed that Fos has managed to lose her arms now, too. She will watch Fos sweat under the attention before reminding her that she doesn't care. This conversation could have taken place before winter and gone basically the same. Cinnabar reacts to her as if she's still the old Fos, and Fos's reaction during and after the conversation suggests that this is near the mark. The old Fos is definitely still in there. She'll even later think at least Cinnabar seemed the same as always. By the way, Cinnabar's claim that she doesn't care strikes me as a case of the lady doth protest too much, methinks. After all, she came up to Fos and thus initiated the whole conversation. I feel like she was hoping their talk would proceed a bit differently. Anyway, these two times Fos must react to Cinnabar in this episode I think are critical to cracking through the grafted personality that Fos was exhibiting. Fos's purpose wasn't taking care of Winter, and it wasn't staying busy to avoid sleep. Her purpose was to try to keep the promise to Cinnabar, the first time in her life anyone relied on her. But it had slipped her mind entirely, and then later she was forced to face that she had no actual progress to share. Even if nothing else had happened this episode, I think this would have started to shake Fos out of her stupor. But there are two more instances I think are worth mentioning. The first is the debriefing and its aftermath. She has become used to her arms and their malleability, but the variety of frankly alien things she can do with them is quite the shock to the other gems. Fos will thus realize that her body is actually kind of weird. Perhaps this is why she is having her legs powdered to look normal for the first time. 
I'll actually have more to say about the legs in speculation. Whatever the case here, though, her reaction to the scrutiny of others suggests that she doesn't want to feel so out of place in their society. Her time of isolation isn't actually what she wants her new normal to be. Of course, she'll get the complete opposite of that once the gems get over their initial surprise as she becomes the center of their attention. She will learn that this, also, is not what she wants. The other instance is the fight at the very end where she interrupts the Amethyst twins before they fight with the Lunarian. She will say she was thinking how I wanted to show you two my better side, and will dispatch the enemy in the same unhurried manner as in the episode's opening. Fos will be disappointed to find another of the old type, but takes some satisfaction in maintaining her balance throughout the encounter. It's the exchange afterwards I want to call attention to, though. The twins will swarm her, obviously impressed, and even say, you're nothing like the Fos from back then. Fos smiles at this, but I must say it strikes me as something of an awkward grin, as though she doesn't quite know how to handle the praise. It's not the way Fos beamed when called Master Scholar back in episode one, and it's not the simple delight she expressed at being allowed to join the fight, or when she was instructed to help with the winter duties. It may be that Fos does enjoy this kind of attention, and that is where we will see her start to develop from here, or perhaps doesn't know how to explain that her priorities have changed. Either way, Fos strikes me as a bit unsure with how the fight is received. It's yet another way that things are different compared to how the episode began. Combined with the encounter with Cinnabar, and her plight at the hands of her curious peers, Fos by the end of this episode is drifting somewhat back towards who she was. Not exactly the same Fos mind, but much further from the withdrawn and self-flagellating one we met just before winter came to an end. Thus, to circle back to what I said at the outset, the division of this episode into two halves forces a comparison between the Fos who tries to reconcile events by herself and the Fos who is part of a larger society. She's not suddenly back to who she was, but older and wiser, yet the time among her fellow gems seems to shake her out of the emotional water-treading of our first half. I suspect she has much yet to do toward making peace with the loss of Antarcticite, but this episode seems to suggest that she will benefit if she stops trying to resolve everything completely on her own. There are lessons she can learn from those around her. Now, Fos's characterization is pretty much the main event for this episode, but I do have two more short sections here. The first is about Kunga. I mentioned already how he seemed lost for words when Fos continues to perform the winter tasks despite needing rest. This expression is not one we are used to seeing on his face, and he seems all the more helpless for still wearing the ragged robes from the Lunarian's trap. When Fos suggests he needs to change out of those robes before Red Barrel sees, he will say that he has no others, which leads to Fos repairing them. But the fact that this has not yet come up between them suggests to me that Kongo was also living in a kind of emotional stasis, that losing another gem caused him to suspend his usual propriety. It reminds me of how someone suffering a bout of depression may let their hygiene or housekeeping lapse. Even if that is not something Kongo experiences, it still makes that impression on us in the audience. Kongo certainly tries to keep emotion out of his decision-making, if possible, and it may be that this is part of why Fos gets herself into such a state. When she will cry in front of him and apologize for it, he will say that this is merely a defect found in ancient organisms and nothing to fault yourself for. 
He knows just what she is doing, yet considers it a defect. That does not suggest someone well-equipped to handle the range of emotions Fos has been experiencing. However, this doesn't mean Kongo is heartless. We'll later find out that he had been staying awake with Fos throughout winter when she couldn't sleep, apparently pushing up against his limit. Maybe he doesn't know what to say to her, but it seems he tried not to leave her entirely alone. Fos did not completely accept his attempts to take the blame at the end of episode 8, but that too was Kongo trying to attend to Fos's well-being. There's another scene in this episode that I find curious, and may points to a Kongo trying to change things up. When Fos comes to him in hope of relief from the torment of the others, he will insist that they first line up before revealing that this was a joke. Kongo. Telling a joke. What's more, he will distract Jade from her question about whether he feels lonesome by lifting her up in the air like an adult delighting a child by holding them up high. Considering the surprise and then enthusiasm of the other gems hoping for their own turn, I can't imagine this is something he has done before. Is it possible that the rapid changes in Fos are causing a change in Congo, albeit slower? The only other people she seems to have affected so far are Cinnabar and Ventricosis, both of whom show a lot of emotional complexity. We could already surmise that Congo has a lot more going on in his mind than he lets show, but this may be further evidence that he leads a complicated inner life. But you know who doesn't seem all that complicated this episode? Pretty much every other single gem. We have quite the role reversal this time around. Fos is the youngest, and before winter definitely seemed the most immature. Carefree, naive, self-centered and petulant and impulsive, compared to the responsible, predictable, respectable behavior of the rest of society, she often seemed like a child among adults. This episode, though, has most of the gems acting like kids introduced to a new plaything, fearful and unsure at first, and then relentlessly curious and selfish in their pursuit of her. The previously mentioned moment when they all clamor for Kongo to toss them in the air too just increases this impression. So does another aspect that I have not really addressed to this point. Red Barrel will end the awakening scene by announcing that she will start handing out their summer uniforms. Summer and winter uniforms, of course, suggest students in a school. They refer to Kongo as sensei and defer to him like they would to a teacher. Additionally, they referred to the large building we usually see them in as the school, though of course there hasn't been anything like classrooms or classes that we've seen. However, there's clearly a lot of overlap with a school setting in our series. One might even think of Jade as similar to the class president, and Rutil as the school nurse or nurse's aide or something. The emphasis on fulfilling your duty and the general disdain towards those who slack feels a lot like how your job as a student is treated in high school settings. It's all very curious, and I don't know quite what to make of it. I'm reminded of when I spoke about how the gems go to the trouble to powder themselves to look more human-like, or have a shyness about their naked form, neither of which makes sense if they have no cultural link to humanity. Emulating a school environment should make no sense to the gems, but it leaves one wondering if Kongo knows what human schooling was, leading him to intentionally pattern their society this way. I will say that the similarities were especially pronounced this time with the way the gems act toward Fos and then toward the idea of being held up. For the first time, they really strike me as a bunch of schoolgirls. The only ones who don't are Fos and Cinnabar, 
and incidentally, each of them is still in their winter uniform. I'll have more to say about this in theme, so let's leave this large characterization section and get on to world building. Starting off, all the details of how Fosa's body is functioning. We get a bit of an explanation in the opening, disguised as Congo trying to get her to take it easy due to the continued strain. There is a network of the alloy running throughout her body to help support the weight of her arms. What's more, it is a gold-platinum alloy rather than pure gold, which means it's even heavier but more firm. I do find this an odd detail to include in light of what I said last time about the purity of gold in Buddhist art, though truthfully most gold you see is an alloy of some kind. Maybe it qualifies as the something silvery that I said would be a likely addition to Fos if we go with the seven treasures interpretation, but maybe not. Either way, the weight of it has stolen her speed. Her agate legs no longer a superpower, but merely an adequate means to move her frame at all. Additionally, the lost fragments we saw in her scramble last episode have been filled in from her cut hair. An interesting thing to happen just after I recently realized their hair can be treated like normal hair, as far as styling and braiding, and apparently now cutting will go. Normally they wouldn't actually want to cut it off, but since they can stick it elsewhere on their body, the consequences of losing inclusions or memories is eliminated. She will also rather ominously point out that it's just going to get pushed out by this alloy, which makes it sound like Fos will become progressively less herself. Considering the point in the episode where she says this, it seems at least somewhat metaphoric, but may still continue to affect her in truth. We'll also learn that her body has grown to accommodate all the gold she has assimilated, and she is now taller than the other gems. This way that she has grown also seems at least partially symbolic. I'll have a little something else to say about Fos's body and speculation when we get there. We get some details filled in by Fos about last episode's Lunarian encounter. Evidently, it was pink fluorite that was used for the fishhook grenade things, so add another gem to the list of those held by the Lunarians. Fluorite is relatively soft, a 4 on the Mohs scale, and very brittle, so they would not have been a good contact weapon like Sapphire or Heliodor. It still leaves me wondering why they would use up the gems they captured in this way, but at least the choice of the gem for that application makes some sense. Fos will get interrupted, but she further tries to describe the second Lunarian that showed up, which apparently was also different than any seen before. Obsidian will actually have a little part on stage this time, and reveals that the sword Fos is using was Antarcticites, apparently in addition to the saw-like one we saw her with originally. Fos wants to keep using it, which is consistent with trying to make herself more like our departed friend. Obsidian will suggest that perhaps she should try combining the sword with her unique arms, or something crazy like that. I find this pretty funny, because just two episodes ago, when I was spitballing about what material might be available to replace her arms, one of the things I floated was the possibility of some obsidian lying around. I joked about Fos with swords for arms, and now here is our weapon crafter suggesting the same ridiculous notion. Color me amused. Lastly, the tears. Fos doesn't know what tears are, but is in enough emotional turmoil to need to cry. I hadn't really thought about it before, but the solid bodies of the gems mean that they wouldn't normally produce tears even if they were in a state of great sorrow or distress or joy. However, Fos now has an aspect of herself that can flow, 
and so is able to cry in a manner of speaking. When thinking back to whether there was another instance of a gem who might have cried, I suddenly realized we have seen tears before, from the one other gem who has a liquid-like aspect, Cinnabar, having a momentary cry when warring between her desire to be free of the night and her reluctance to trust the others. Interesting to me that the two gems who may be the most emotionally complex are also the only two who even can shed tears. In theme, let us revisit the broad environmental allegory idea that I brought up a bit ago. This episode links the gem and their society back to the biological world more directly than I think has happened before. I've referred several times to Euclase musing about how disconnected the gems are from living things, how much more in tune biological creatures are with the passage of time and the changes in season. Yet it turns out that most of the gems hibernate throughout winter. They retract from the world in tandem with living things. Furthermore, when they wake up, our gems all act rather childlike, no? Almost like a mimicry of springtime when lots of baby animals are newly born into the world. I'd mentioned that the hibernation sequence strongly recalled a symbolic death for our gems. Is this now a symbolic childhood? The closest, perhaps, they come to rebirth? They don't seem so disconnected from the ebb and flow of seasons right now. Even the further comparisons to a school setting will echo this, as Japanese school years also begin anew in springtime. Fos especially will have a parallel drawn between her and living things, and how the rate of change for each is frightening to her. She has her first ever experience of watching winter fade away to spring, of being someone who observes the cycle instead of merely caught within it. The thought makes quite the impression on her, a far cry from Euclase's comments on the subject earlier in our series. Are Fos's experiences bringing her more in tune with the natural world? There's already a bit of precedent during her adventures with Ventricosis, in which she learned the speech of her more animal-like cousins, ventured into another biome, and learned a lot about the concept of death. To directly draw the parallel between the living world and herself speaks of a rather self-aware Fos in this regard. And the fact that she has an emotional reaction to the observation means that the parallel is informing her characterization. I made the thematic tension of change versus permanence a part of this theme when first explaining it, and even then, Fos was clearly the battleground for that conceptual struggle. With this episode, she is even more obviously an embodiment of the inherent conflict between things which change quickly and things which resist change. Suitable for one who is beginning to straddle the line between immortal and mortal worldviews. So let's talk about individual versus society once again, as this episode gives us an interesting variation. We have a literal example of most of Jim's society versus the individual of Fos when she is assaulted by their curiosity, but the actual tension of this theme is in how things which are good for an individual are not necessarily the things which are good for the society they live in, and what exactly one should prioritize to find that balance. The first half of this episode delivers a Fos who is utterly without a society, though she is fulfilling a duty on its behalf. But the disconnect between who she was and who she became in its absence ends up being a strong case for the value of a society to the individual. Rather than a question of the good of the many against the good of the one, 
we have a palpable demonstration of what to the individual gains from inclusion in the larger social order. Fos is now in a position to give back to her society more substantially than she did before, which admittedly was not a very high bar to cross. But being on the other side of this dynamic may exert an interesting new pressure on her. Potentially related to this is the pairs and opposition pattern, as I could see that coming up again next episode, depending on what's going on with Bort. Um, but we'll just have to wait and see, and I'll have plenty more to say in speculation. Last in theme, our ongoing Buddhist lens. Just a couple things today. I've been portioning out all of my original thoughts over several videos, so it's not quite so overwhelming. And I've opted to postpone one of the original ones for today in hopes that an upcoming example will provide a better example. Uh, instead, we'll have these two observations that are relevant to episode 9. First, we have the Golden Lotus return in the shape of the platform Fos creates to make herself level with the Lunarians. Lotus flowers actually take root in the bottom of ponds or rivers, stretching their stems up above the waterline where their leaves and flowers thus spread. The very elongated form of Fos's creation matches this growth pattern. It even spreads around her feet like petals, effectively leaving Fos standing in the middle of the bloom. It is this structure that makes the lotus an appropriate symbol for Buddhism. The Buddha compared himself directly to a lotus, for though both may originate from the mud and dirt of the world, they are yet unstained by it. As the blossom rises above the earth and the water, so too should a Buddhist rise above the attachments and defilements of existence. Lotus leaves are also extremely water-resistant. Droplets cannot stick to the leaves, just as Buddhists should not let cravings or desires stick to themselves. So, the otherwise confusing shape of Fos's golden riser ends up making a lot more sense when viewed from our Buddhist lens. This explicit flower shape perhaps even has some overlap with the environmental pattern I already mentioned, considering Fos's increasing connection to the world of living things. Because of the particular emphasis on the journey of Fos this episode, the second thing I want to discuss is the overlap between her story and that of the actual Buddha, Siddhartha Gotama. At least, the traditional story. It goes like this. Gotama was born into privilege, wanting for nothing. And in time, there came to be a prophecy of sorts that he would become either a great king or a great religious leader. His father preferred the great king outcome, so shielded him from religious knowledge and any notion of the suffering of the world. Gotama thus lived a carefree life of idleness, and well into adulthood had no concept of the hardships of the world. However, he did eventually venture outside the palace and learned of people whose lives were much harder than his own, as well as the concepts of disease and death. No longer content in his idleness, he left his sheltered life with a purpose. Since he had lived a life of self-indulgence, his first instinct was to seek the opposite, and he became an ascetic someone who practices extreme self-denial, a stripping away of all the trappings of his previous existence. But eventually, this did not achieve the state he sought, and he came back to the world, though still changed for the experience. This caused his five companions at the time to be disappointed in his mental state, and so they would leave him. But he would pursue a middle path, a way that existed between the extremes of self-denial and self-indulgence. And then, while meditating under the now-famous Bodhi tree for seven weeks, he achieved enlightenment. 
Okay, so maybe Fos has a long way to go. I will say that if relinquishing her previous attachments and tendencies is our story direction, then it wouldn't be surprising if she eventually loses all of her original Phosphophyllite. Even if I am stretching a bit to compare her experiences with Ventricosis with Gotama's time among the ascetics, the parallels of leaving a life of idleness when confronted with the existence of suffering is pretty spot on. Both are inspired by the hardships they witness in others rather than in themselves, and will then willingly invite hardship into their own lives in pursuit of a solution. Much like Gotama, I expect Fos to slowly become the antithesis of who she was at the story's beginning. That this relentless self-improvement will enable her to save others is a situation I find very easy to root for. In What to Watch For, I said last time the main thing I was interested in was how Fos and the other gems would react to the loss of Antarcticite, because I suspected it wouldn't be the same reaction. Sure enough, our entire episode revolves around Fos's difficulty in understanding how to move forward from that loss, and then how to relate to the rest after she had changed so much. Meanwhile, the other gems are downcast at the news, but this reaction is quite fleeting. The novelty of Fos's arms seems to speed the matter entirely from their minds, as surprise and curiosity overtake whatever grief they may have felt. This jives with what I said before concerning the nihilistic resignation a lot of the gems exhibit, as well as the different levels of emotional complexity that we discussed in characterization. Perhaps each is capable of a moment's introspection like we saw with Yellow Diamond when considering her previous partners. However, none are as affected even a tithe as much as Fos is, though that is at least partially because of the responsibility she feels toward the loss. The other more minor things I wanted to see were whether the Ice Flow's comments about Cinnabar and Springtime had any merit. It seems not. In fact, she may be the only person who is exactly the same as before. Thus, they were a reflection of Fos's own anxieties, which at least means that Fos thinks the issue is pressing on a subconscious level. I would have been interested to see if they spoke to Fos again that winter, and what they were saying if so, but oh well. The last thing was the memory loss, which I really did expect to have at least some narrative consequence. It ended up having more of an effect on the presentation than the narrative, as they will tease us with the possibility before revealing that forgetting Cinnabar was a product of Fos's state of mind rather than anything permanent. As to what we'll watch for in the future, well, we ended up with an unmistakable focus on Bort's reaction to Fos's fight, so we are meant to be watching for that. Um, I'll have a bit to say on speculation for that. I also want to watch to see if the Amethyst Twins' reaction to Fos fighting will change her feelings at all. The fight itself doesn't fulfill her like she originally hoped, but gaining the respect and adoration of her peers could potentially shift her characterization, and not necessarily for the better. I'll also be curious to see if Kongo being asleep will affect anything. Um, the last time he was in a long meditation was how we ended up with Ventricosis. This time, his exhausted state is something Fos already feels accountable for, so if it factors into an upcoming outcome, she will have further cause to feel guilt or regret. Lastly, I'm looking for what might kick off a final arc. We'll have three episodes before this season concludes, and this whole episode focused on Fos as a new but still changing person. It seems appropriate to put her through some kind of crucible before we leave off, though I don't really know what. I'll suggest a few things right away in speculation, so let's move on to it. 
So to start off with broad speculations about how we might close out the season, as we've gone along, it has seemed less and less likely to me that Fos would manage to resolve her quest to find a purpose for Cinnabar, at least within the season. It has served as a catalyst for so many of the things Fos has done, and how much she has forced herself outside her comfort zone, that wrapping it up feels somewhat premature. Becoming the person who can save Cinnabar is analogous to Fos becoming the best version of herself, but there's several reasons to assume that process is far from over. Thus, if there is anything like progress on this front, I would expect it to be part of some other movement in the story. That leaves me thinking that either something new will crop up to occupy these next three episodes, or they will discover some process to rescue Antarcticite, and an attempt will be made. We have a lot of potential stressors right now. Fos in her unstable state, Congo offstage, whatever is going through Bort's mind, and the rather likely reappearance of a new type of Lunarian to catch them all off guard again. We also have elements that have cropped up during the season but have not come back into the story. These are the situation between Daya and Bort, the repeated mention of Alex and her Lunarian obsession, and whatever it is about Fos hearing the term humans that spooked Congo so much. Possibly, too, whatever Ventricosis and her brother have been up to, especially if Fos forgetting about them will have narrative consequence. I suppose I could try to dream up a scenario that incorporates all of these outstanding factors, but really, just one or two could precipitate a final crisis. Daya and Bort's unresolved situation could dovetail into whatever Bort is thinking at the end of the episode, or the desire to go after Antarcticite could be given a clue with the return of Ventricosis, or with some new type of Lunarian. Or, it's none of these things, and the last couple of gems that haven't interacted with Fos will get their day in the limelight. The only thing I feel really confident about is that Fos in her confusion will probably be the proximate cause. On that note, let me speculate about Bort a moment. Our episode ends with Bort narrowing her eyes at Fos and speaking her name after the Lunarian fight. Leaving off on that note is meant to make us suspect that some confrontation between Bort and Fos is imminent. In the context of Fos suddenly being quite capable in a fight, what kind of conflict may be implied? Bort is the unquestioned strongest fighter, does she suddenly feel a challenge for the top spot? The only time we've seen her smile was when Congo praised her for fighting in his absence. Does she feel Fos is a threat to the one thing we've seen her enjoy? I know the structure of this cliffhanger is meant to give us thoughts of this nature. However, remember how I opened this whole video? About all the questions one might consider when speculating how a character may react to an upcoming situation? I wasn't only referring to my guesses about this episode. I also had this speculation on Bort in mind. To hope for an accurate guess, then, what do we know about Bort? We saw her threaten to obliterate Fos back in Episode 2, and she brandished her sword at Fos at the end of Episode 6 as well. Even in this episode, the thing that she's curious to try out in regards to Fos's new arms is how it feels to cut through them. If we were to make a list of all the gems we thought capable of coming to blows with Fos, no doubt Bort would be top of the list. She's hot-headed and certainly doesn't shy from confrontation, so I think it's certainly possible that a fight may break out between them. But if so, I want to suggest that it may be for something other than competition or jealousy. Again, I need to review all that I know about Bort. She first comes on the scene to rescue Daya after her new technique doesn't pan out. 
She'll further try to keep Daya out of the next fight by wrapping it up at speed and being dismissive of Daya's capabilities. She'll jump in with the rest to attack Ventricosis after she swallows Fos. When Daya is out late, trying to uncover how to bring Fos back, Bort will have been waiting up for her, and will urge Daya along when she says that she's found a way. Bort will tire herself out seemingly more than any other gem when they search for Fos in the sea. She'll be the one who dashes to the rescue of Amethyst, furious with Fos for sitting idle while it happened. Whatever else we can say about Bort's personality, it should be clear from that list that she is someone very protective of her fellow gems. She won't hesitate to throw herself headlong into confrontation, perhaps even to make it unnecessary for others to risk themselves. There is one more data point on Bort's personality from this very episode. Bort will not be fooled by the fakery that Fos uses to escape the others for a moment, and so they will have a brief exchange. Bort will ask Fos if she's happy with herself now that she's stronger, and Fos will state emphatically that not a single good thing has come from it. What is interesting to me is Bort's reply, I'd imagine not. Bort is the strongest, and hearing Fos proclaim nothing good comes from it is apparently what Bort expected to hear. I feel we can infer that Bort feels similarly, that perhaps strength is its own kind of burden. Something Kongo will say this episode is probably relevant here. With great power comes a sense of solitude. He's talking about Fos, and perhaps even himself, but we can imply that same notion to Bort, no? Alone at the top? There is thus some common ground now between Bort and Fos in terms of fighting capability and then perhaps isolation. But where I can see them clashing is that other aspect of Bort's, that protectiveness towards the others. Fos got something of a confident boost from keeping her balance in the last fight and succeeding without Kongo around. She further earned the adulation of her peers. There's a possibility then that Fos may be overconfident in the next fight, may perhaps bite off more than she can chew. Such recklessness could put the other gems in danger, and that would put her in conflict with Bort. Perhaps Bort knows her limits and acts accordingly, and surmises that Fos does not know hers and is thus a potential source of danger. That would be enough to explain the narrowing of the eyes at episode's end. The fact that Kongo is not around to mediate between the two means any conflict has a much greater chance of getting out of hand. Maybe this is wishful thinking on my part, but I'd rather like to see Bort of all people be someone who helps correct the path of Fos's character development. It would also tie the conflict between Bort and Daya back into the narrative, and perhaps create some peace. Either way, I will be surprised if Bort acts purely out of jealousy, assuming that she acts at all. Last of all, I want to make a speculation that may not factor into the story for a long time, though it could happen before the season is out, and this is about Fosa's legs. As mentioned before, she is no longer someone with incredible speed due to the weight of her arms. Appropriately then, she has Rutile powder the legs to look normal, as her speed has likewise returned to normal. She did not have them covered up before, despite I'm sure having the opportunity, so this seems symbolic of losing what made the legs special. Two paths suggest themselves to me from this action, and they aren't exclusive. Either or both could happen. The first is that it implies Fos may continue to have instances of adding or subtracting capabilities as she adds or subtracts parts of her body. Certainly, if you buy into the Seven Treasures of Buddhism interpretation, then Fos has many more things to add to herself over time. The loss of the legs as a trade-off for the arms 
implies that she will not simply accumulate more and more power, but will exchange one upside for another. In her current arrangement though, I feel like powdering the legs could serve a secondary purpose. It helps us forget that she has that capability underneath it all. This opens the second path, that a day comes when she needs to call on that speed again. I can imagine the drama of a moment when being able to move fast is critically important, and Fos thus has to choose between the many upsides of her arms and whatever else is at risk. Such a moment would be especially impactful if we've been given enough time to forget about the agate legs hiding in plain sight, which the application of powder and the new plodding pace will see to. There is a potential climactic moment built into Fos now, though it could be quite some time before the right moment to unleash it. Shedding her golden arms for a burst of speed isn't just a nice recipe for spectacle either. It potentially opens up a new type of treasure that could replace the arms, continuing her towards eventually having all seven become part of her. But of course, the longer between now and any such thing happening, the more surprising it will be, so I'm not so sure it would show up in this season. Still a cool potential setup, and I just wanted to throw it out there now that the legs have been given the appearance of a return to normal. That is all I have to say about episode 9. I hope to have episode 10's analysis for you sooner than I originally thought. See you next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.